when you think about the word church, what comes to your mind? We're at a conference and perhaps church is looming in our minds tomorrow, but, but what do we think about when, what comes into our minds when we think about the word church? <clears throat> Maybe different for, for, from our different context, variety of answers in there. Sometimes, you know, when I talk to unbelievers, they have all kinds of different ideas about what church is. And so sometimes they'll say, oh, it's just like a, it's like a religious McDonald's. You know, it's a religious franchise. It's the Jesus franchise where you just have all of these kind of religious McDonald's all over the place. And you can just go in and you could just, you know, you, you get fed quickly and then you just kind of pay your money and then you disappear. And there's no real connection. Uh, some people think, you know, very, I, I hope no one thinks this in this room, that church is an irrelevant, outdated, uh, old-fashioned, sanctimonious, moralistic social club. Some people think of church just as the collective noun for a bunch of Christians together. Somehow like church is to Christian like herd is to cow, or church is to Christian like flock is to sheep, or church is to Christian like goose and, and gaggle. That it's just the collective noun for a bunch of Christians together. Some people think that church is just a gathering or an audience for a religious variety show. Uh, I hope that's not the case in this room. But from Genesis to Revelation, God has been very clear about his purposes and plans. That he is a God who, whose eternal purpose is to dwell among a people that he has made his own. That God knows us and he loves us individually and he's called us and saved us by name. And that his, our names are graven on his hands and written upon his heart. But he doesn't just call us as individuals. His plan is bigger and better than just you and Jesus. His plan is not merely that Jesus would come to save and call individuals to salvation, but that he came to build a church. Matthew 16, 18, I have come to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Ephesians tells us, doesn't it, that the church is to display the manifold wisdom of the riches of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection ushered in a, a new communion with God the Father and a new community with fellow believers. That's what the church is. A people called out of darkness into the glorious light of God to proclaim his excellencies together. And God has designed the Christian life not, not to make it on our own. And he never actually calls us to do that or even to try. But the Christian life is designed to be a life that is lived together with other believers in the local church. That You could say it this way. Uh, the new life that the gospel gives is a new life that is together. It's to be lived out together. And so that's what, uh, just to tell you a little bit about the church that I pastor and I'm a part of, that's what we're trying to do at Grace Church. We're trying to create, uh, through the grace of God, build a people, a community of believers who believe the gospel, who are, we're, we're, uh, our work as a pastoral team with Pete and Matt here and myself is to trust the grace of God that he will help us through the power of his word and his Holy Spirit to cultivate followers of Jesus Christ who have a, a deepening personal understanding and appreciation of the riches of the gospel. But not just to believe them, but to live them out. That God would help us cultivate followers of Jesus Christ who are intentionally applying the truths and the implications of the gospel into our lives. 
And not only would we believe and live the gospel out, but that, we'd, that we would represent it and proclaim it to the world. That we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, cultivate followers of Jesus Christ who are passionate about reaching their world with the life-changing reality and the truth of the gospel. And we're trying to do this in community. And I stole this uh, definition of the church from Mark Dever when he said the church is a community, a, a local, living, loving community of believers who are committed to Christ and committed to one another. That's what we're trying to do by the grace of God at Grace Church uh, and trying to just help us all see that being part of a local church and learning to love it is both uh, biblically responsible pleasing to God and, and good for our souls. And that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning is I was assigned the, the privilege of speaking on gathering to edify. Because as, as John Wesley said, there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. We're called to be God's people, his community, a local, loving, living community of believers committed to Christ and to each other. And you and I need the care and the edification and the encouragement and the building up that comes from being part of a local church and gathering with them regularly. And God's word is clear about that. And so we're going to read God's word together from Hebrews chapter 10. So would you follow along with me as we read from verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray and just ask for God's help as we come to his holy word. Father, you are good to us, just as we've been singing about this morning. One of the many ways you have been good to us is to give us your word, which instructs us in the life-giving, destiny-shaping, eternal eternity-changing power of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Your word is true and powerful, as we were reminded of yesterday. And so as we hold it before us in our hands and look at it with our eyes, and I trust hear your word with our ears, I pray that you would do us good by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of your word, for the good of our souls, 
and for the glory of Jesus. Help us now, we pray. We're tired, we're easily distracted. So we ask for your help because we're dependent upon you. Help me to speak with clarity and faithfulness to your word. Give us all ears to hear, hearts that are open. Build your church through this next hour, I pray. May your word edify us for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, Hebrews chapter 10, 19 is a marker. It's a major turning point in the book of Hebrews uh, where the author has come to an end, really, of his central uh, portion of his letter, his address to the Hebrews. He, it, he's drawn together the, uh, his theological argument about the superiority of Jesus Christ and about the, the work that he has accomplished on our behalf as a great high priest. And Hebrews, 19, uh, Hebrews 10 verse 19 to 25 is a brilliant summary of all that he has written in the first 10 chapters. And it's also a brilliant introduction to all that he's about to exhort his hearers to in Hebrews 11 to 13. So it's, it's a few verses that, uh, that summarize the entire book, all that's gone before, and lay out all that he's going to finish off with. And in true preacher style, he moves from doctrine to application. He moves uh, from theological, rich teaching about Christ to now saying, in light of all that Christ has done, now, let's talk about how that's supposed to affect us as believers. And he's aiming to spur his, his hearers and his readers on to action based on the foundation of the truth that he's already put forth. And verses 19 to 25, I, I understand to be one long, single sentence that powerfully expresses uh, all that Christ has accomplished and then gives us three exhortations about how we should respond in the light of Jesus' work. And, and if I was to summarize what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to accomplish, I, I would probably try and summarize it like this. That the finished work of Jesus Christ in the gospel calls us together as a church to live a life of faith, endurance, and mutual edification for the glory of God. That the finished work of Christ in the gospel calls us together as a church to live a life of faith, of endurance and mutual edification for the glory of God. He begins in verse 19 with a therefore, which hopefully, because we've been well taught in our local churches, means on the basis that of all the things that I have already said, on the basis of Hebrews 1 to 10, now let me exhort you. And, and just in case we forgot what Hebrews chapter 1 to 10 says, he then gives us a masterful summary in two two kind of clauses that just remind us of all that he says in Hebrews chapter 10. And he says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy places. Hebrews was written, as Jeff reminded us yesterday, to uh, Jews, former Jews, we think, uh, who were well versed in the Old Testament and well understood the temple and the sacrificial system. They knew that entry into the most holy place was severely restricted. That only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, could one person, the high priest, go into the most holy place of the temple, the presence of God, where God dwelt, only once a year. And if you went in unauthorized, if, you, if anybody other than the high priest went in on any other day than the Day of Atonement, uh, carrying a blood of a sacrifice, you got killed. 
You were exterminated. You were dead immediately. They knew that well. But so it's revolutionary for the writer to the Hebrews to say, now, since we have confidence to enter the most holy places, since we have freedom, that word confidence really means freedom. We have permission. We have authorization to come into God's holy presence. The severe restrictions have been lifted. Now we can go in freely and fully whenever we want and whoever we are. He, Christ has come and he's given us an access all areas badge to draw near to God. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Now what's the decisive difference between uh, the Old Testament and what we experience in the New Covenant? He goes on to say... <clears throat> We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. What makes the impossible possible for us? What makes it possible for for us to come with permission and authorization and freedom and confidence into God's presence is the blood of Jesus Christ that he has poured out to secure that access for us. Christ, in his obedient, substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death on the cross, has obtained the right of entry into God's presence for all who trust in him as Lord and Savior. We have confidence to enter the most holy places. It's a new way. It's, as Jeff referenced yesterday, it's a way that was previously unavailable to us. It's a qualitatively different way of entry. No longer Do we come to God on the repeated sacrifices of of the blood of bulls and goats? But now we draw near through the once for all sacrifice of Christ, through the tearing of his flesh that that was, uh, and the access that we have through his blood was symbolized, wasn't it? At that moment when he died on the cross and the curtain in the temple was torn in two. We've got confidence to enter the most holy places. So the writer to the Hebrews says, since we have this confidence, and then since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since we've got a merciful and faithful high priest who actually is is enthroned in heaven, who is alive and now stands in the very presence of God as our mediator and as our advocate who is ever interceding for us, whose blood has atoned and covered our sins, and he's there before the Father pleading his blood on our behalf. He's interceding for us. So since we have have authorization through this great high priest. Since these things are true, since his high priestly work has established the privilege of access to all areas, since Jesus himself, our mediator and advocate, advocate, our great high priest, our elder brother, since he rules over the house of God, since he is the one who gives us permission to draw near, since he invites us to draw near, since these truths are the present reality and the present possession of everyone who is covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, in light of all that Christ has accomplished, three calls, three exhortations. First one is this, it's, there's a call to faith. That the finished work of Jesus Christ in the gospel calls us together as a church to live a life of faith. I draw this from verse 22, where the, the writer says, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure 
water. The writer in the book of Hebrews, he has a passion for for the people of God to understand that we can draw near. He's already referenced it in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. He's done it in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He's going to do it again in Hebrews 11, verse 6. There's a call here for the writer to the Hebrews, to the people of God, to seize the opportunity of the access that Christ has won for us to God and to draw near. Not, it, drawing near is not, he's not thinking about a, a, a physical act. It's not build your Tower of Babel through your own achievements and merits to get to God. It's not uh, just go to church. It's not what he's saying. He's saying draw near in an invisible act of the heart, in an invisible act of faith, where we direct our attention and our thoughts and our minds and our hearts towards God. And we draw near, not because God needs us, that he is somehow impoverished without us, but we are commanded to come for our own joy and for his glory. Because as the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 16, 11, there is pleasures, uh, in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He encourages us to draw near in faith that we might have fellowship with God, that we might enjoy a real relationship with the God who made us, that we wouldn't settle in the Christian life for, uh, for a, a life of distance from God, but that he would, uh, he would be a very present help and a reality in our lives. That we would draw near to experience an ever-increasing, ever-deepening communion with the God who alone can satisfy us completely forever. It's a call to faith. And so, so, as Jeff mentioned yesterday, when you and I gather together and our hearts waver and our hearts are cold or we're trembling with the uncertainty uh, or a sense of utter unworthiness because of our sin to draw near, the writer to the Hebrews says, no, draw near with faith. Don't approach God lukewarmly. Don't approach God indifferently. Don't approach God reluctantly. Don't approach God tentatively or fearfully. Don't approach God flippantly or carelessly because he, he's holy, as Jeff reminded us. So approach him reverently as is appropriately, but come confidently, come joyously, come recognizing the astonishing and costly things that God has done to, uh, to draw us near through Christ. That his blood has washed us clean, that all the barriers and the sins and the guilt that formerly hindered us and formerly prevented our access to God, they have been fully and decisively and eternally removed. Christ's death is powerfully effective. His blood is powerfully efficacious. And so we come with a full assurance of faith, even when we feel dull or lifeless or in the valley. We cry out, oh God, I'm dry, I'm lifeless, I, my, but my only hope is you. And so I come now and ask you to have mercy on me and to revive me again. Open my eyes to your glory afresh. Quench my thirst. Give me life in your presence again. That's the drawing near that we have the, the access to do. We come with a full assurance of faith, knowing that the blood of Jesus covers our every sin, our many sins. 
He has removed our guilt, and we can be at rest. And even when our consciences and the enemy accuses us, which he does, we have a great high priest who has shared his priceless blood to bear our sins and cover our transgressions and remove our guilt so that we can draw near to God's holy presence so that his presence will no longer consume us but thrill us. Draw near according to this knowledge. Drawing near like this should just, it should evoke adoration and worship and thanksgiving and singing. The finished work of Jesus Christ in the gospel calls us together as a church to live a life of faith, of drawing near, full assurance of all that Christ has done for us. That's the first call. The second call is a call to endure. The finished work of Christ in the gospel calls us together as a church to to live a life of faith, but it also calls us together to live a life of endurance. This is drawn from verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The writer to the Hebrews from chapter 1 has been writing to exalt and to highlight the superiority of Christ in comparison to uh, the works of angels, the works of, and the things of Moses, the things of the old covenant, the temple, the sacrificial system. Uh, he, he's writing to highlight for us the glories of Jesus Christ in comparison to all that has gone before. One of his purposes in doing this is to address the drift that the people of God feel sometimes. The first audience, it, it seems, as you read the book of Hebrews, was tempted to return to their former ways of living, their former practices in Judaism. They were tempted to stop believing the promises of God uh, that were secured for them in Jesus Christ. It seems that they were tempted to walk away from the things that they had come to hear and to believe they were drifting. Tempted, potentially drifting away from Christ. And so the writer frequently and often encourages his hearers to endure. And he warns them against wandering away from Christ. And he calls them to endure. He calls them to an endurance, a life of endurance by holding forth the glories of Jesus Christ and his ultimate work that is far superior to everything that's gone before. And he compares Christ to the former things and says, it is futile and foolish to abandon Jesus Christ and return to your former ways or to turn even to anything else that this world offers because they all pale into insignificance and they're inferior to all that Christ has done. So he says these words, to the Hebrews, and he says these words to us this morning, don't do it, don't wander away, don't walk away, don't abandon your profession of faith, don't waver, don't give in, don't give up, don't give in to the temptations, don't drift, Jesus is better, Jesus is deeper, Jesus is greater, Jesus is more glorious than anything and everything that is past, present, or even future. So hold fast to your confession. 
In fact, this is the whole point of what he's going on to say in Hebrews chapter 11, isn't it? As you get to Hebrews 11, he holds out and presents to us a a star-studded list of the heroes of the faith. All of whom did the very thing that the the writer is, is calling us to do. They held on to their confession of hope. They lived in faith, but more significantly, they died in faith without having received the fulfillment of the promises. They lived a life of endurance, and they were held out as models for us. Live like these people. Not because they were some kind of like celebrity Christians, but because they modeled for us the call to endurance that he calls us to here. In verse 23. Hang on. Believe the promises. Continue hoping. Trust God. Trust specifically, his idea in in speaking about hold fast, the confession of our hope is, is the things to come. So, yeah, believe, and, and, and absolutely, I'm not downplaying this at all, but believe and hold fast to the things that Christ has already done for us, but they point us forward to all that is to come as well. In him, there's a second coming where Christ will return glorious. He will make all wrongs right, and he will fix everything that is broken, and he will take us to be with him forever and there will be no more sickness no more sadness no more sorrow no more death for the former things will have passed away behold i make all things new as he says revelation 21 hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering this goes right against the grain of the world and the and the sadly the teaching of much of the church today doesn't it you and i we live in a world where Christ is not loved. We live in a world where Christ is not honored. We live in a world where Christ is not followed. We live in a world where God's word is dismissed. We live in a world where faith in Christ is ridiculed. The call is even more important to us. Hold firm the grip of the gospel in the midst of an unbelieving world. Hold unswervingly to the hope that we have in Christ. That he is Lord, that he is Savior, that he saves, that he has saved even me, and that he will save me to the utmost, eternally. You know, today, even in the church, sadly, we're constantly told, put our life, uh, put our hope in this life. It's your best life now. Ask the Father to shower you with treasures now. We're told to treat all hardship as an abomination To treat all pain and consider all pain as an unwelcome intruder into your best life now. That we're to regard all difficulty as being the product of a weak faith that hasn't really learned how to trust in Jesus. That is nonsense. The whole, you know, the whole notion of of what the writer to the Hebrews calls us to here in verse 23, the whole notion of putting our hope in what lies ahead, in putting our hope in the life to come, in putting our hope in the world to come, the age to come, in the Savior that we can't yet see, but who is coming back is considered ridiculous. Hey, that's not going to sell books. How in the world are you going to preach that? Believe the things that you can't see? That mm, I don't like that. Let's tell everybody that you can enjoy the, your best life now. 
Again, I once heard Mark Dever say this, and it's always stuck with me. This is only your best life now if what awaits you is hell. But we have been given and called to and entrusted with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the hope that we have in him. And the writer to the Hebrews says to us this morning, hold fast the confession of this hope without wavering. Believe the promises of God even when you can't see them. And we do this for a reason. We do this because, he tells us, God is faithful. The one who has made the promises, the promise giver, is the promise keeper. And more than 14 billion years ago, if you believe the the scientists on the age of the universe, more than 14 billion years ago, he made a promise to me and to you in the covenant of redemption in his son, that if you trust him, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will not fail you. He will forgive you. He will accept you. He will bring you home. Do not stop believing these promises. Put all your eggs in God's basket. Because God will do everything that he has said. Because that's who God is. That's the God that we belong to. And so we are called to live by faith, not by sight. Hoping in things that can't be seen right now, but that does not make them any less true. The finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us together as a church to live a life of faith and to live a life of endurance. That's the first two calls in light of all that Christ has done. A call to faith, a call to endure, and then finally... There's a call to edify. The finished work of Christ in the gospel calls us together as a church to live a life of mutual edification. This is verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Right here in verse 24, we get the job description of the church. What's your church supposed to be about? Got a mission statement? Here it is in in verse 24. In light of all that Christ has done, since we have confidence to enter the most holy places, since we have a great high priest who is over us, who has given us authorization and permission to draw near to God. One of the fundamental aspects of being the church, of being a loving, living, local community of believers that are committed to Christ and are committed to one another is that in all of life, in all of the Christian life, but especially when we gather, we should be aiming for mutual edification. The building up of the church, his body into the head that is Christ. Since Christ is our great high priest, since he has given us full and free access, one of the crucial responses to all that he has done is to be concerned about those God has joined us to. 
in our church. Verse 24 is a call to get to work in all sorts of different ways. But the goal is to stir one another up for, to love for Christ that is demonstrated and overflows into love for one another that is seen in doing good to one another. It's a call to get to work in all sorts of ways, to minister to one another and to engage with one another so that we might be encouraged and edified and built up into Christ our head. The word here, uh, let us consider how to stir up, is an interesting word. It's a, it's a word that uh, could mean stimulate, challenge, provoke. Uh, now, I have six kids, as Jeff mentioned in the introduction, <coughs> and I love them very much. But one of the worst times in my life is when we get in the car to drive on holiday. You, if you're a parent with more than one child, you probably experience this. And your kids, you know, they get in the car and you back off the driveway. And the first thing they say to you is, are we nearly there, nearly there yet? And you say, no, we've just backed off the driveway. And they say, oh, okay. And then 10 minutes into the journey, they start, the elbows start going. Yeah, everybody, you know this? And they, the elbows start going and, dad, he's elbowing me. Dad, he's, irrita- he's irritating me. Dad, he's provoking me. Dad. And they start nudging one another. And then sometimes it turns into slaps and sometimes it turns into name calling. And, you know, I, one of the ways I can identify with Kevin DeYoung is I'm a bad parent as well. Um, you know, so me and him, we're together on that. And, you know, and they, they begin to irritate one another. They stir one another up and they bring out the worst in each other. Angry, negative provocation. That's not what the writer to the Hebrews is calling it to. So often we think of stirring up and provocation as rubbing each other up the wrong way. But in fact, what the writer to the Hebrews here is calling us to is to positive stimulation. to Not to irritate, but to agitate. To be active and energized and intentional and purposeful in stirring each other up to, if I, if I use this term, to bring out the best in one another. For the sake of the good of other people, for the, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God. To stir one another up. To provoke one another. To in- encourage one another. To love for Christ that flows out in love for one another. That is seen in practical, caring demonstrations and actions for the benefit and the good of other people. To change the metaphor completely and to uh, give you a soundbite that you can tweet because I know everybody's living for that these days. This is a call to look uh, out of the window rather than into the mirror. So often I wake up in the morning and get ready for church and my focus is what is what I'm doing. Who are we going to get there on time? I need to preach. I've got to think this through. I've got to do that. I've got to see that person. I've got to make that an announcement. I've got to do this. I've got a got meeting this afternoon. Okay, I've got to get back for that. And my focus is I look in the mirror. This call here in verse 24 is to look out the window. Be on the lookout for other people. How do we do that? Well, the, the writer doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us guessing. He gives us two very practical ways here. And they're in verse 25, 24 and 25. 
One of the ways we provoke or, or the context in which we provoke is we have to meet together. Mutual, mutual edification is to be aimed for in all aspects of the Christian life and all aspects of church life. So it's to be done in one-to-ones and twos and threes and small groups and discipleship and prayer meetings and Bible studies. But especially I'm thinking about our Sunday gatherings when we gather corporately as his people, as his church. The writer to the Hebrew says that we need to meet together in order to stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's the context. The context of this command is the gathered church. And he gives us in verse 25 a very strong admonition and warning about the dangers of not meeting together. Don't neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. Evidently, some Christians had ceased meeting together with the church, with one another. Now, we're not told why, but we could speculate. Maybe persecution, maybe indifference, maybe apathy, maybe complacency. Maybe they just didn't see the need. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they were busy. We don't know. But the writer said to the, to the Hebrews and to us this morning gives us a warning that for Christians who habitually, deliberately, persistently abandon the local gatherings of the church, it's, it, the failure to gather is not just simple neglect. It's willful and wrongful abandonment. Look at the dangers that he holds out for us if we, if we don't meet together. As he goes on in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And he goes on to the end. He highlights the, the warnings of failure to meet together. It's dangerous for our souls. It's not just an abandoning of meeting together with the church. It's an abandoning of God himself. It's falling into the trap of the Old Testament Israelites. Where God made himself so clear to them. And yet they wandered away and abandoned him. And judgment fell on them in exile. So let me ask you a question. How important is the Sunday gathering to you? Now you could say perhaps if you're a musician singer, oh, it's very important. I'm always there. I'm always playing. I'm there early. But, but you, that's a little bit artificial. So let me ask you this question. How important is the Sunday gathering to you when you are not serving? When you're not playing, when you're not up on the platform? Because that will give a better indication of how important Sunday is to you. If you get there early when you're playing, but you stroll in 10 minutes after it starts when you're not, that might indicate that Sunday is not actually that important to you, but your music or your performance is more important. For all of us, the right to the Hebrews is, is really, he's calling us, be there. Be in regular attendance in your local church. Don't have reasons not to be there. Be active, be energized. Position yourself as you gather with God's people to receive all that you can and all that you need to receive so that you're equipped and you're strengthened to hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering in times when you can't be with God's people. Gather and be built up and edified so that when you're apart from God's people, there is strength in your faith is strengthened and your hope is before your eyes so that you can get through the week. 
You know that meeting together is, is a priority or should be a priority because we know that we need to get through the week. We need to be encouraged and built up and edified and reminded of the gospel and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and rehearse the gospel. And we need to sing so the words of Christ may dwell in us richly so that Monday morning when it's raining and we get out of bed at six in the morning to go to our boring job of, um, you know, photocopying or whatever it might be, the mundane of life. That we're strengthened to hold fast the confession of our hope in an unbelieving world. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us in verse 25 that we need to do this all the more as we see the day drawing near. There are numerous biblical texts that tell us that the last days will bring increased chaos, will bring increased trouble, increased temptations, increased persecution, increased threats, increased trials, increased hardships. It's not going to get easier to be a Christian in the world that we live in. The world is increasingly decaying in, 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 in morals, in, in its spiritual worldview. It's not going to get easier to be a Christian. Finding excuses to bail out and to give up when the, when the pressure is turned up and rises, they're, they're going to become easier and easier to find. And so, ne- like never before have we so desperately needed each other. Lone ranger Christians who think they can make it on their own and they don't need the local church are destined to fail. Those who, dis, who dismiss the one and others of Scripture and the need for mutual edification and encouragement are worse than fools. You can find better preaching than your local pastor on the internet. You can find better music than your worship team can play on iTunes. But what you cannot find is the edification that is needed for your Christian life if you are cut off from the very place that God has designed for us to receive it. So meet. Meet. Gather. Prioritize the local church so that you might stir up and be stirred up in love for Christ that overflows into good deeds for others. Meeting is not, don't, don't think, please don't think that you have faithfully obeyed this command when you slip in late, say hi to a few folks, slip out the door when the final song or the prayer is being done. That is not what the writer to the Hebrews means. He talks here about encouraging one another. It's not simply enough to show up. We gather to encourage one another. We, we come, when he says consider this, there's, there's weight in that word that says be purposeful and intentional when you come to the meetings. In our gatherings as a local church, there ought to be a strong horizontal element to our coming together. You might sit there and say, well, isn't worship supposed to be all about God? Sounds a little bit man-centered to think that we should come to edify one another. But I love what Brian Chappell says in his book, Christ-Centered Worship. Making God the exclusive goal of our worship sounds very reverent, but actually it fails to respect Scripture's own gospel priorities. Certainly it is true that God is the most important audience member for our worship, but if God were not concerned for the good of his people, his glory would be diminished. He expects us not only to praise his name, Psalm 30, verse 4, but also to teach and admonish and encourage one another 
in worship. He cites Colossians 3.16 and Hebrews 10.24. The reality is that when we gather together, we edify the church by magnifying Jesus Christ for the glory of God. When we gather, we should expect more than just a great uh, rousing time of singing and and an inspirational Christian-esque TED talk. We should expect more than just an individual worship experience. Oh, it's me and Jesus this morning, and then it was great. No, it's we and Jesus, isn't it? Expect, we should expect to go to the gathering to be encouraged and benefit from others. And we should expect to go to the gathering to be an encouragement and a benefit to others. And when we're talking about encouragement, we're not talking about empty flattery. Oh, you're just such a great person. You're just a swell guy. Notice how I did that in American accent. (laughs) You're so swell. You're so friendly. Oh, I love your passion. No, when we're talking about encouragement, the word biblically means strengthening one another's faith in Christ so that they might draw near and hold fast. We gather to edify so that we might live a life of faith and live a life of endurance in the times when we don't gather together. And we come alongside others with words and actions that will strengthen them in Jesus Christ. We gather around the gospel so that we, the best way to edify one another is to build one another up into Christ. That our growth and our strengthening flow out of an increased awareness and in our experience of our union with Christ in the gospel. And Christ, uh, I wish we had time to get into this, but we don't. But God gives the, the spiritual gifts that he outlines in, in the different gift lists in, in the New Testament, but particularly in First. Corinthians 12 to 14, so that the church, um, the church family, well, let me just say this, the Sovereign Grace, we're a church family that believes in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to give gifts to his people uh, for the common good of the church, for the edification, encouragement, building up of the body. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are are simply this, they are God's grace in action among his people for the glory of God. God's grace in action. He gives gifts so that we might be encouraged and we might be built up and we might be edified. But the building up and the encouragement and the edification is is the gifts are given so that we might be turned in our gaze and our attention to the giver of the gifts. Use this in uh, this illustration in my uh, seminar yesterday. If you've walked through Bath in the evenings and you've seen the Abbey, you'll see the great big building out there. And it is beautiful. And in the night, it's even more beautiful because the floodlights throw up light and you get to see the intricacies and the the shadows create new awe as you see this great Gothic building. And you're inspired and you think, wow, how did they build that without cranes and spirit levels? And, you know, and, and, you know, they use chisels and hammers. Nobody walks around the abbey going, that is a great light that is shining on this building. Man, I wish I had a light like that in my house. I wonder what kind of bulb they use. Do you think that's a daylight bulb or a halogen bulb? Or, you know, is it? Yeah, man, I, you know, that is a fine floodlight. I should write to the floodlight manufacturer and thank them for doing that. Nobody does that. Because the floodlight is, is there to cast glory on the building. The same way when we gather, we use our gifts, our floodlights, to throw light onto Christ. 
to glorify him. And ways that we are edified is by helping one another to see the attractiveness and the implications and the necessities and the uniquenesses of Jesus Christ in the gospel, to see what Christ has done and why it matters to us. We edify people by reminding them of our confession of hope, that he who promised is faithful. And the goal of our gatherings is that we leave our gatherings having beheld the glory of Jesus Christ, uh, or the glory of God in the face of Christ, uh, and we leave more grace-filled, more grateful, more faithful than if we hadn't been there. That's the goal of our gatherings. And so we sing and we preach the gospel and we share the gospel and we pray the realities of the gospel into our lives so that we might live the gospel. So we gather to edify this has all sorts of implications for us as we lead. If you're a leader here, does our planning, does our leadership, does it have elements and give opportunity for the church to be edified as we magnify Jesus for the glory of God? But for all of us, the, the biggest question I can ask you is this. Are you a consumer or a contributor? Do you come to church to consume? Do you see Sunday as, as merely a time to get your fix, to be fed, to, be, to, re, to receive, to be served, to be entertained, to soak it up? Or do you see Sunday morning as an opportunity both before, during, and after the gathering to engage with one another, to encourage one another, uh, to demonstrate love for one another through practical care and good works, to use the gifts that God has given you to help people see Jesus more clearly? Be intentional. Don't just rock up to Sunday morning looking for what you can get out of it, but come thinking about the needs of those who you gather with. Don't just drift in aimlessly. Come on a mission. Think, pray in advance. Ask God to give you discernment and a word of encouragement. Is someone doubting in your church this morning? Do they have questions because they've lived in an unbelieving world all week? Is someone discouraged because of the life situation and the circumstances that have beset them? Is someone tempted to drift away from Christ because of the sin that's held out to them as offering real joy? How could God use you to bring his truth and his mercy and his grace to bear on the lives of other people? How can you remind them of the call to faith and the call to endurance? Is it a word that you could share, an impression, a, a prophetic sense it could just be a scripture reading. It could just be that you pray for someone. Uh, it could, the possibilities are endless. In Corinthians, Paul talks about a variety of gifts. And he doesn't really try and give us an exhaustive list. He's just thinking about all kinds of things. The spectacular and the non-spectacular. But the, his emphasis is there's a variety of gifts, but they're given for the common good. To build up the church into Christ. And he exhorts us to purposeful participation. So let's ask God to make us a people who are intent on taking advantage of the grace of God that is available to us through Christ so that we can extend it to others and receive from others and be built up into Christ. You know, as a church, we are like climbers roped together climbing a steep mountain. We're all roped together. One person stumbles and falls. It affects us. But someone could climb high and put a, you know, a, a fixing in so that there is hope and that the others coming up behind them can reach the top of the mountain. We're, we're roped together in the community, a loving, living, local body of believers. 
committed to Christ, committed to one another, we've got to work together. We've got to look out for one another. We've got to consider others, help others, remind them we can draw near with confidence, with full assurance, because we've got full and free access into the most holy presence because of the great high priest. So the call of the gospel, the finished work of the gospel calls us as a church to live together and to live a life of faith, a life of endurance, and a life of mutual edification for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are here this morning and your word is true and powerful. And I pray, Lord, that we would go away with your word in our ears rather than the meanderings and ramblings that I spoken this morning, I pray that your word would be implanted into our hearts, that you would cause us to come with confidence to you, into your presence, because we have a great high priest who has paid the once-for-all sacrifice to secure our access. And let us draw near with faith, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope because you are faithful. And let us then consider how we might stir one another up and point one another to who you are, to all that you've done in Christ, and to all that we have because of him. Help us to be churches, people, who make up churches, who because of all that Christ has done, live a life of faith, endurance, and edification for your glory. Amen.